Hey, bookworms. Welcome to Write From Karen. My name is Karen. This part of my podcast is all about books. What works, what doesn't. What can I learn from the story, and how can I apply it to my own writing? I primarily read mysteries, thrillers, romance, literary fiction, with a sprinkle of fantasy. Grab a cup of coffee, and let's crack open a book together. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another book review. Today is Saturday, July 3rd. It is 1.36 in the afternoon. It's a gorgeous sunny day. We've gotten a lot of rain recently, so our grass is nice and green and soft. Usually around this, oh no, I shouldn't say usually because it hasn't been like this in a few years, but I remember as a young girl back in the dinosaur age, where we would go outside at this time of year and the grass would be crunchy, dry, brown, brittle, really hard to walk on and with bare feet because it was it hurt because <laughs> it was hard and crunchy. But we've had so much rain lately that the grass is nice and green. It's still pretty outside. And this is a good thing because being around 4th of July, people will be shooting off fireworks and we don't want to catch anything on fire. Now, our city, of course, has the same ordinance as probably most of the cities across the country. You can't shoot off fireworks within city bounds, which is, I mean, I understand why they do it, because you're going to have these wild and crazy people out there shooting off fireworks and not being responsible. So, of course, they have to say, if you know, since we can't trust the irresponsible people to do it correctly, then nobody's going to do it. So I get it. But um, I do miss those days where we used to go to Kevin's parents who lived on the outskirts of town, uh, outside city limits, and we would take a bunch of fireworks over to their house and we would eat dinner and then we would shoot off fireworks and the kids loved it. In fact, I would dare say that that's Blake's most favorite holiday is 4th of July. He's always loved fireworks and setting them off. And we used to tease him that he was our little uh, pyromaniac. (laughs) Um, Hopefully that never comes to fruition. But he's always kind of had a fascination with fire and explosions and things like that. In fact, when the when he was little, he used to call them splosions. Mama, splosions. <laughs> it was so cute. Anyway, but now that my in-laws no longer live in that same house, they are in a duplex inside the city limits of a nearby city, then we no longer have any place to go to shoot off fireworks, which makes me sad. Uh, so we don't buy fireworks anymore. We don't have any place to shoot them off. And you know, we have a lake outside the city limits, very close to our house. But I mean, everybody in the world goes there. And it's a little bit of a war zone around 4th of July. So that's off the table. But uh, I do miss shooting off fireworks. And, uh, you know, the ooze and awes and all that kind of stuff. So we no longer do that, but my parents are coming over tomorrow night to have hamburgers and curly Q hot dogs, which if you've never had those, those are so good because you, you get so much more like condiments and in, uh, in the hot dog. But 
And then afterwards, I don't know if my parents will stick around to watch fireworks with us, but we typically will go to a parking lot across the street from a country club and mooch off of their fireworks, which are usually pretty great. Um, So I'm looking forward to doing that tomorrow night. I think it's supposed to be a pretty nice night. Uh, So weather wise, it should be pretty good. Anyway, so that's our 4th of July plans. As of now, Um, I hope you guys have a great 4th of July with your family and friends and you're able to shoot off some fireworks safely and, uh, you know, just enjoy the freedoms our our wonderful country affords us, uh, regardless of what you hear from the far left who are very unappreciative and uh, think America is a really bad place even though they can afford to say this from their TikTok videos and iPhones, um, it you know they're not right. They've been brainwashed into thinking something that's not true. But until they wake up and face reality, uh, enjoy this beautiful country and the freedoms that we have um, been able to earn off the backs of our very brave men and women in our military over the years. So... Um, This week was um, a good week. Nothing really exciting happened. My back feels way, 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 way better, thankfully. Been doing a lot of stretching, which has helped hugely. And uh, I bought myself a yoga mat. And I've never done yoga. I've always wanted to do yoga. I am probably the least flexible person that you'll ever meet in your entire life. But I am getting older and I really don't want to be one of these old ladies that ends up with really stiff joints and unable to really freely move because I haven't been taking care of my body. So I plan on uh, starting some beginning yoga. I found some videos on YouTube and I will plan on start 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 doing some stretches and things like that every night just to kind of keep my body limber and hopefully uh, my back doesn't go out again because that sucks. And I feel way older than I actually am. And I don't want to go through that again. So that is my plan. Um, Anyway, I was going to get political for a minute, but I'm going to I'm determined to keep the politics out of these book reviews. You're welcome. So instead, let's turn our attention to the book of this week. Now, I actually finished this a few days ago, I've made a deal with myself, because I have great intentions, but then I get lazy actually implementing my ideas. I mean, I know, shocker, I'm just, I'm sure to anybody who's been reading my blog, or following me for any time period, which by the way, my blog is right from Karen.com. That's W R I T E from Karen.com. It has a new design for July. I try to, to put something like a new header and color scheme on there every month just to kind of shake things up and make things exciting. But um, anyway, so I made a deal with myself on this book thing, I told myself that I can't start reading the next book until I've written a review on the book I just read and do a podcast. So this book's actually been read for a few days now and my review is done. I've just been too brain dead to get to hop on here and talk about the book. But here we are, we're doing it today. Um, And in case you're curious, or you're reading along, following along, the next book 
that I will be reading is called The Lost Colony by A.G. Riddle. It's the book number three in a trilogy. So, I mean, I don't know. I guess you could read them as standalones. Um, but it is a third book in a trilogy. So if you've not read the first two, you might want to <laughs> before next week or whenever I get this up next. But um, that's the next book I'll be reading um, after this book review. So the book review of this week is called Station Breaker by one of my favorite authors of the moment. And it's Andrew Main, M-A-Y-N-E. And Station Breaker is number one um, of a series, I'm assuming. And it's a scientific, not scientific, it's kind of a, it's kind of an adventure science fiction genre, if that makes sense. Uh, it's definitely not a genre I read very often. But uh, because it's Andrew Main, I wanted to, I'm on a mission to read everything of his. So I read it. And uh, let's talk about it. So here is the blurb for Station Breaker by Andrew Main. Astronaut David Dixon's first mission to space goes horribly wrong when shots are fired on a Russian space station. He finds himself making an emergency landing from orbit and becomes the most wanted man on Earth. Desperate to unravel the plot he's found himself in, he takes his pursuers on a wild chase from space to the back streets of Rio and beyond. Dixon's survival relies on his skills as a pilot and willingness to do whatever it takes, crashing a passenger jet into the Mexican desert to pulling off an incredible heist in low Earth orbit. If space doesn't kill David Dixon, Earth will. So that's a great blurb for Station Breaker by Andrew Main. And let's read a little bit of the first part of this book. The chapters in this book go pretty fast, which I feel is indicative of the story itself. The story itself goes pretty fast, or at least it feels like it does. I mean, it's a normal sized book, but this character is put through so many different situations that it just you just feel like, it's just one, it's just a roller coaster up and down ride the entire book. Uh, but we'll talk more about that in a little bit. Okay, so I'm going to read several chapters just because again, they're pretty short. Um, again, this is Station Breaker by Andrew Main. Preface. All of the technology described in this book is either currently being tested on the launch pad or in advanced stages of a development. This is the story of the very near future. I personally thought that prologue, that preface was very intriguing and uh, definitely makes me want to read more. And it also gives it a different perspective when you read the book, like, wow, is this stuff really happening and we just don't know about it? So kudos to Maine for a very intriguing, short, um, little brain teaser. The first I don't well, they, I don't think he really calls them chapters. He just kind of labels them. So this is Cosmodrome. Drops of blood trickle through Natalie uh, Karatova's fingertips and splattered into the puddle below. She caught her distraught reflection in the pool of water and the glow on the horizon as an RD-300 rocket engine fired on its test stand, lighting up the night sky over Cosmodrome. 
Bracing herself against a silver sedan, smearing blood across the door, the roar was a distant hum under the sound of her own difficult breathing. Don't run, said the thick-jawed man from the window of the black Mercedes as he rolled up. Natalie pushed away from her resting spot and stumbled further into the parking lot, trying to find someone to help her. A minute ago, she was reaching for her keys when the two men came to a stop. Natalie, the driver had shouted, feigning familiarity. When she turned to look at who was calling to her, he fired his pistol. The noise startled her more than the wound. She thought a rock or something sharp had flicked her. It was the growing numbness and the sight of blood on her palms that told her what had just happened. In an instant, she knew this was about what she had seen a few hours ago. It had been a clerical error. As a payload supervisor, normally it was her job to inspect all cargo being, before being loaded onto the rocket except for military cargo. But this wasn't a military payload, or at least she hadn't thought so. There was no certificate from the Army, much less a liaison officer from Roscosmos. The clipboard in hand, Natalie had donned her clean room scrubs and entered the sterile chamber just like she did for every other launch. When she saw the plastic case sitting on the table, there was nothing indicating it was military. But when she cracked the seal and looked inside, she realized immediately there must have been some mistake. She quickly closed the case, but it was too late. The escort assigned to the cargo had re-entered the room, having momentarily abandoned his post. There were no words exchanged between them. Natalie made a quick exit, not even bothering to throw her garments into the bin. She headed straight for Supervisor Valentin's office, Roscosmos Chief Zerkoff's right-hand man, and told him what she had seen. He listened carefully, made a call, then gave her a warm smile and told her it was just a mistake. Everything was fine. There had been a mix-up with some sensing equipment. Natalie thanked him, laughed it off, pretending the best she could. She knew he was lying. Having an engineering background, there was no mistaking what was in the case. She wasn't sure what she was going to do about it, if anything. Then the Mercedes pulled up and the man shot her. Natalie managed to weave through another row of cars, but her legs were portraying her. Darkness began to encroach her peripheral vision as she continued to bleed out. She made one more stride, then collapsed on the wet pavement. Unable to move, yet still somewhat alert, she heard the footsteps of the approaching men. Get her into the bag, then place her into the trunk, one said to the other. Natalie felt their rough hands as they picked her up and laid her inside a plastic pouch, the kind they keep on board a spacecraft in case of a fatality. The scent of the material reminded her of a spacesuit, which set off a mental trigger in her mind. She remembered where she'd seen these men before. Their names were Yablakov and Damin. They were cosmonauts. They weren't supposed to be here. They were supposed to be getting ready to launch in just a few hours. That thought faded as quickly as it came. When they zipped the bag over her head, she worried about her daughter, Elena. If Natalie didn't call and remind her, she would forget to start the oven and dinner would be cold. Stun gun. T minus four hours. I think my commander is insane. Not the kind of insanity natural to anybody willing to sit on top of a million gallons of explosive fuel, but the workplace shooting kind of nuts. 
I tell myself I'm the crazy one. This is Commander Halston Bennett we've, we're talking about. I've known him for years. Yet a second ago, I saw him in the prep room mirror, slipping a gun into the side pocket of his spacesuit when he didn't think anyone was looking. At first, I don't think anything of it. Bennett, after all, is the manliest man you'll ever meet, a former Navy pilot, SEAL instructor, and a NASA astronaut before coming to work for iCosmos. Of course, a guy like him would carry a gun into space. Military pilots are taught hand-to-hand combat in case they come down in hostile territory. Russians keep pistols on their soy craft in case they land somewhere with wolves, which is just about everywhere there. Maybe Bennett is just planning for any contingency. Hell, maybe he wants to shoot Martians. I try to put it out of my mind, but I can't. I should say something. Maybe it's just a standard operating procedure. I don't know about. In that case, telling Renata, our launch manager, that he has a gun won't be a big deal. But what if it's Bennett's little secret? Maybe he's not supposed to do this, but the piece is his good luck charm. If I rat him out, he could be out of the company and I'll probably catch shit for being the one that finked on an American hero. An American hero. Halston Bennett is the kind of man that made me want to become an astronaut. He's the man I want to be when I grow up. He's also the one that trained me to go into space. Space. Holy shit. Of course, this would happen on my first mission. Hell, I didn't even know I was going until 12 hours ago. I was an alternate for Robbie Carlisle. I got a phone call at 3 a.m. telling me I needed to get my ass to, to Canaveral in the next hour. The official story is Carlisle suffered a sprain while working out. The real story is that he slipped in the shower getting busy with some girl other than his regular girlfriend. I've been listed as an alternate six times. After the fifth time, the astronaut I was alternating for defiantly refused to show up with the flu, a broken leg, or visible cold sores. I kind of gave up and decided I'd be going into space after about the 10,000th rich jerk-off tourist flew out of Mojave in one of those suborbital tin cans they call a spaceship. Then I got the call. I'd been waiting for that call ever since I decided I wanted to be an astronaut. Not because I wanted to set foot on Mars or perform earth-shattering experiments in microgravity, but because I wanted to fly things. The faster, the better. My heroes have always been pilots, from Chuck Yeager to Han Solo. I wanted to be the guy at the controls. A guy like Bennett. Bennett. Damn it. In some alternate universe, I was going to be a military guy turned NASA astronaut like him. Imagine my disappointment when I was 17 years old and walked into an Air Force recruitment center wearing my Coke bottle glasses and was told in no uncertain terms the only way I'd see the inside of a fighter cockpit was if there were paper towels and a bottle of Windex in my hand so I could clean it for the guys with perfect eyesight. Pissed, I worked two jobs that summer, getting up hours before dawn to fold newspapers and deliver them. I can still smell the wet ink and feel the warm newsprint in my hands as it sucked all the moisture from my fingers. After that, I worked at Burger King during the day, getting laughed at by my friends as they came into the place imagining new and ridiculous ways to have it their way. Har har, guys. I used the money I earned to buy myself laser surgery for my eyes, which was something my parents couldn't afford. Trying to raise three kids on one teacher's salary as my mother finished up her master's degree. With beyond perfect 2010 vision, I walked into the Navy recruiter's office and was told, sorry, kid, 
LASIK was an automatic disqualifier. They changed the rule later, but it was too late for me. Uncle Sam wanted no part in making my dream a reality. I'd never be a guy like Bennett, a real American hero. Dejected and rejected, I decided I'd find other ways to take to the sky. I studied engineering and aeronautics in college and found that as a student, you could get cheap pilot training. I learned how to fly fixed wing, rotary, single engine, multi-engine, and even no engine in gliders and a hot air balloon. One summer, a couple of my flight school pals and I even took a trip to Russia and got to take control of MIGs. I did a crash course in Russian, afraid I'd try to change the air conditioner and end up ejecting myself over Siberia. To pay for it all, I spent my spare time volunteering for medical studies where they poked me with different chemicals as I sat around playing flight simulators. When it came time to graduate, my friends all went into commercial aviation. I didn't. Flying a jumbo jet wasn't the same as going to the stars, so I took a job as a science teacher in my mom's school district. The same week classes started, iCosmos, the private space company with its own fleet of rockets, announced they were accepting applications for astronauts. I pissed my mom off when I turned on in my school resignation after iCosmos hired me, although it wasn't as an astronaut at first. They had plenty of former NASA people like Bennett who'd gone through their program to choose from. When the recruiter read the part on my resume about working for various pharmaceutical companies, you should have seen the fiendish look in her eyes when I explained I'd basically been a medical guinea pig. Oh, we need those too, she replied. Will it help me be an astronaut, I asked. Sure, why not, she answered in that Northern Californian non-response. It didn't matter. Being a test monkey stuck at the bottom of a swimming pool for 10 hours in a leaking spacesuit, or finding out what happens when your cockpit chair snaps loose as the capsule goes rolling sideways down a hill was a lot closer to being an astronaut than flying uh, complaining tourists and neurotic flight attendants on the same route over and over. The day they finally accepted me into the iCosmos astronaut, astronaut program after nearly killing me on Earth nine ways from Sunday was the second happiest day of my life. The happiest was today when I got the call. That all came to a fiery re-entry when I saw Bennett, the man who taught the most interesting man in the world how to be interesting, stick a gun in his pocket. Man up, David. Go talk to him. Worst case scenario, and he actually is crazy, he'll just shoot me here on Earth instead of 200 miles up. Glitter Menace Acting as casually as I can, I finish sliding my chest unit into place and make sure all the lights are green. I double check it, even though half a dozen people will take a look before I get into the capsule. Space flight is supposed to be routine now, but not that routine. What's up, Dixon? asks Bennett, looking up at me from his wrist display. You know, suicide pills are a lot easier to pack, I say in the weakest possible way as I point to the pouch with the gun. He glances past me and sees the mirror. Watching me suit up? I didn't know you were into that. This kind of locker room trash talk is a bit out of place for Bennett, not to mention the fact his son is openly gay and a Republican U.S. senator elected in no small part because of his father's support. He's clearly trying to avoid the topic. I press on. Seriously, is that some new SOP I don't know about? 
Bennett takes his time as he examines his readout, then walks up to me, standing toe-to-toe, our chest units almost touching. Dixon, there are things you need to know and things you do not need to know. I do not have time to tell you all the things you need to know. What I can tell you is that what you thought you saw doesn't exist in your world. Understand? But I'll humor you and tell you that because of certain security requirements for our payload, I'm required to take certain precautions. He gives me a friendly clap on the shoulder and smiles. Don't worry, son. I've seen the cargo manifest. We're just bringing standard supplies to the U.S. iCosmos space station. There are no military or spy agency payloads I'm aware of. But would I know? A line item that says 35 by 55 by 20 centimeter box weighing 2.4 kilograms listed as replacement carbon dioxide sensor monitor could be some NRO NRO long range LIDAR sensor designed to scan foreign satellites or something or other. I'm proud of you, Dixon. This is what it's all about. You're going to do fine. That's the Halston Bennett I know, the man who trained me and dozens of others in the High Cosmos program, the guy we secretly try to emulate. Gentlemen, you all set, says Stephanie Peterson as she enters our locker section. Technically part of the cargo, she's a NASA astronaut we're taking to the station. An athletic, imposing former Air Force pilot, she's also the man I want to be when I grow up. I was just explaining to a yoga boy how things are going to be. You just do whatever Halsey tells you, she gives me a wink. I want to ask her if she knows about Halsey's gun, but by the informal way those two talk to each other, I get the feeling that he's up to something she'd either know or be in on. Yoga boy. Bennett once caught me doing stretches before a pool dive and never let it go. He's a great instructor, but never, never lets you forget who the real men are. The men and women who served in the military and were part of NASA's astronaut program, they were accepted from the best and the brightest. The twee posers like myself are just pretenders. Astronauts to the press room were not a calls to us from the door. Let's go, Dixon, says Bennett as he gives me a friendly pat on the back. Time to tell them what it feels like to be about to have your space cherry popped. It's disorienting the way he just can switch right into the avicular instructor whose calm voice walked me through my underwater and zero-G training on our 727 Vomit Comet jet. It's hard to call it a press room when at the moment it's a mostly empty auditorium with just 12 internet bloggers. On a real mission, something besides a FedEx run, the room would be full Today we get anyone with more than 10 Twitter followers and nothing better to do until their parents come home. It's kind of embarrassing and nothing like the newsreel footage I grew up watching of astronaut press conferences. Vin Amen, the CEO of our company, insists that we do this before every launch. Watch out for that one, Peterson whispers to me, singling out a girl in crutches wearing a glittered speckled t-shirt and purple streaks in her hair. She looks to be between 19 and 25. I pretend everything is totally cool and my hero didn't just emasculate me moments before the most important day of my life. I'll be careful. No, seriously. She once asked the NASA director a question about a contractor funding overrun that he didn't have the answer for. It nearly cost him his job and killed the program. Seriously? I give the girl a hesitant glance. 
leaning on metal arm crutches from some kind of condition, she doesn't look threatening. I keep a wary eye on her anyway as Renata starts our briefing. There's also a mischievous curl to her lips like she's holding back something clever that I find alluring. Bennett explains how excited he is to be part of this program. Peterson talks about how thrilled she is to be going to the station and what kind of research she's going to do. I make an inane comment about being eager to ride shotgun, actually saying the word shotgun and catching myself too late. Thankfully, the joke passes by and I feel pretty sure Bennett isn't looking at me with daggers. Renata opens it to questions. The menace in the glitter shirt shoots an arm into the air and almost drops a crutch. Renata manages to avoid her as long as others have their hands up. There are the predictable questions about what it's like to be an astronaut from a group of people who look like the most adventurous thing they'll ever do is move out of their parents' basements. I get a couple of technical ones about the new version of our space capsule. Finally, the only girl, the only raised hand is Glitter Girl. I can see Renata's hesitation. Okay, Lainey Washburn, you're our last question. My question is for David Dixon. As one of the first astronauts to not have prior NASA or military training, what's it like to be the odd man out in a capsule full of veterans? Did she just call Yoga Boy out for being a poser? I probably stutter and take longer than I should. Well, Lainey, the mission of iCosmos is to open space up for everyone. That starts when a regular guy like me gets a chance to fly next to a couple of real heroes like Captain Bennett and Dr. Peterson. She smiles at my answer. I mentally clap myself on the back. Before Renata can end the briefing, Lainey blurts out another question. Teetering on her crutches, she asks... When will people like me be able to fly for iCosmos? By me, I think she means handicapped. Gut punch. I flinch. I hope Bennett's gun is loaded and I get the first bullet. Thankfully, Peterson jumps in and saves the day, telling Lainey that both NASA and iCosmos have a program for making space accessible to all Americans. Lainey smiles at her answer but keeps her eyes on me. I get the feeling she asks the question just to make me squirm. Moving target. It was a textbook launch, just like the simulator, except for the part where I'm worried my commanding officer is going to whip a gun out at any moment and shoot my brains out. The G's were more than I've experienced for a sustained period, but I've done enough gut-churning flight maneuvers to not be bothered. The real stomach twister happens a few minutes after we reach orbit. Launching to a space station is like trying to throw a baseball through a specific window of a bullet train as it flies past if the train was going 17,000 miles an hour. You don't aim for the target. Instead, you calculate where it will be at a specific time, then try to intercept it. Launch windows are measured in half seconds for this kind of thing. You don't use a map so much as a spreadsheet. While we were sitting on the launch pad for three hours, the U.S. iCosmos flew overhead twice. If you've ever been out in the middle of the desert on a moonless night and seen the tiny speck of a low Earth orbit satellite or space station whiz across the sky, that's what we're trying to intercept. It's not even over the horizon when the launch computer fires the rocket. The launch computer controls everything. Joining up with a space station involves two other computers besides our own. There's the one at Mission Control in Nashville watching everything and making sure tracking and telemetry jibe. 
Then there's the one controlling our destination, the U.S. iCosmos station, doing things like adjusting the pitch of the solar panels every few minutes so the station will encounter less drag as it reaches the closest point to the atmosphere in its orbit and controlling the tiny little thrusters that move the station out of the path of space debris. The station's biggest concern is fast-moving objects hurtling towards it, which is exactly what our space capsule is doing. At 17,000 miles an hour, a 1% margin of error in velocity means slamming into the station at the same speed as a race car at full throttle, enough force to destroy the structure. Before we even get close, we have to reach a parallel orbit matching its velocity. This is made all the more tricky because spacecraft, even the fancy iCosmos Unicorns capsules, don't have a lot of fuel to burn. It's not like the Millennial Falcon where you can just have Chewbacca take you to orbit on a whim and dodge incoming TIE fighters without worrying about fuel consumption. A little spreadsheet is keeping track of fuel, velocity, distance to target, and has lots of little triggers to tell us when we need to take a different course of action. All of this is automatic for the most part. Commander Bennett's job in mind is to watch our big flat screen displays and keep an eye out for any flashing warnings. At some point in a normal launch, ground control will let him use the joystick to bring us closer to the station before the automatic docking computer takes over. This is really just giving a monkey something to press so he feels he achieved something. The iCosmos chip ships have done this kind of thing hundreds of times without anyone at the controls. But when there's human cargo, in this case, Dr. Peterson, you want pilots on board for when all the computers don't agree and letting the ship burn up over the Pacific Ocean isn't an option. Fifteen minutes after launch, I get a flashing box on my console saying there's a problem with our trajectory. Commander, I'm getting a warning about our projected path. I'm on it. Nashville, this is Unicorn 22. I'm getting a warning that our, our intended destination is unavailable. Over. Unicorn 22, hold steady while we check on this. Over. I flip through a few screens and realize the USIC station is sending us a do not proceed any closer signal. This would be from the computer system that watches out for any fast moving threats. Unicorn 22, we just heard from the USIC that they experienced a solar flare that knocked out their inbound telemetry sensor. They're going to try a reboot. Continue your orbit until otherwise noted. Over. A solar flare? I checked through all my readouts and can't find anything from the Helios satellite. There's nothing about it. Dixon, are you planning on arguing with their computer? Says Bennett. Which is preferable? They're right or their computer made a mistake? Good point. I shut up. I pull up the re-entry profiles. If we can't dock with the USIC, then we'll have to return to Earth. Like trying to catch the station, re-entry is equally complicated. If we miss the window, we could find ourselves in the Pacific, thousands of miles away from the nearest rescue, or worse, in hostile territory. Ideally, we hit the window at the right time and come back down over Canaveral, where we use the landing rockets to bring us down to the pad, which would mean I'm home in time to grab dinner at Outback Steakhouse and get to sleep in my own bed. The alternative is a prison cell in North Korea or burning to death in the upper atmosphere. Reentry profiles loaded, Commander. Hold your horses, Dixon. Let's see what the folks at Nashville have to say. Are you that bored of space already? Asked Peterson from the seat behind me. She's joking, but there's something cold in her voice like it was forced. She can't be scared, can she? 
Unicorn 22, this is Nashville. We just spoke to the USIC commander, and she says they think they may they may be a, dis- a sensor alignment issue, and they won't know until they do a spacewalk. And even then, it could be days. Please load up the reentry profiles, and we'll tell you when to proceed. Over. Affirmative, Nashville. Doing a systems check now. Over, says Bennett. Dixon, what's our ETA to a Canaveral window? I'd already done the math. In 34 minutes, we'll need to start our reentry burn. He nods, then starts going through screens on his console. At the corner of my eye, I see him digging through directories of all the onboard sensors. I'd never seen him do that in the simulator, but we've never been in this kind of sim- simulation before either. Situation before. Nashville, this is Unicorn 22. It looks like we've got our own sensor issues on our heat shield. Over. Suddenly, a bright red box starts flashing on my console, telling me there's a heat shield malfunction. I start to flip through sensor readouts and scan for anything that looks out of line, and then my screen goes blank. Confused, I turn to Bennett. I've lost my display. He relays this back to Earth. Nashville, this is Unicorn 22. My co-pilot appears to have lost his display. I'm giving Dr. Peterson redundant controls. Over. Roger that, Unicorn 22. We suggest a reset, but if you're experiencing a shield sensor issue, we advise against that. Over. Affirmative, Nashville. I reach out to touch my display to see if it was just a video issue. Bennett stops me with a sharp look. Dixon, keep your hands off it. Peterson and I have this. I have control, says Peterson, checking heat shield sensors. Nashville, I can confirm we have a sensor problem of our own. We need to make visual confirmation to verify. Over. Unicorn 22, please stand by. Over. It's amazing how calm everyone can be when you just realize you've been fucked by the universe. The USIC can't let us dock, and we just found out we might burn to death on re-entry. Making things worse is the, va- is the fact <clears throat> that I think Bennett intentionally shut me out of my screen so Peterson can have access. First the gun, now this. Something is not right, but I keep my mouth shut. So from this point forward, you have to read the book. <laughs> I can't read the whole thing to you. Um, but they have to reroute and they find themselves reaching out to the Russians for help because there's some question on whether they can re-entry safely and the Russian spaceship is the next closest thing to them. And so they reach out to get hope or to get help. And the Russians are like, okay, fine, you can come aboard, but we're going to watch everything you do because, you know, they're still kind of our enemy and we don't, you know, we weren't exactly invited. So being decent human beings, they allow the team to dock. And after they dock, um, all hell breaks loose. Bennett and Dr. Peterson board the, the space station and they tell Dixon to stay in the ship. Dixon's not real sure why. He's a little insulted as to why he has to be left behind, but he's got to kind of watch their ship so that the Russians don't. Uh, come aboard and maybe steal some secrets. So Dixon's on board the spaceship and he hears some shots ring out and he's like, what in the hell is happening? And like I said, everything just all hell breaks loose. Um, So I don't remember the exact details, but he does end up getting back into the ship and getting off of the space station and reentering earth. 
Um, but every single chapter is just like a roller coaster ride of Dixon being in danger and coming up with creative ways to get out of it. Um, let me read you my review of the of the book of the story. I really enjoy Andrew Main books. He has a way of sucking me into his stories and his humor humor is off the charts. I found found myself actually laughing out loud a few times. I felt I was holding my breath this whole story. There was something exciting happening nearly every page. In fact, it was almost too much at times and the character kept finding himself in more and more impossible situations. In fact, there were times I was like, there is no way this character is getting out of this and Maine proved me wrong by finding a unique and fun way to release the character back into the wild. So David Dixon is a bit of a geek. Maine doesn't really describe what he looks like or if he did, I missed it because I was too distracted trying to figure out how the character was going to escape his latest trap. But I imagine David being attractive, but not overly so, more like a charming geek. He doesn't exactly turn women's heads, but he's attractive enough that women are not immediately turned off by him. David is a hardcore geek. He's always wanted to be an astronaut. He has to jump through several hoops for that to finally happen. And when it finally happens, it's by accident. David's an understudy, for lack of a better term, a backup plan in case something happens to the astronaut that the big dudes picked for the job. And that's exactly what happens. The astronaut that was supposed to have gone on the mission gets food poisoning the night before the launch and David is called in to replace him. While getting ready, David spots his superior and hero stuffing a gun into his gear. David is pretty sure that's not part of the approved items for the mission, but he doesn't say anything because he doesn't want to get this guy he looks up to into trouble and he doesn't want to jeopardize his first mission. He's also wondering, did this mission just get dangerous? The crazy starts after getting into outer space and they run into some trouble and are not going to be able to dock with the original space station and instead have to dock at the Russian station or there's a good possibility they will die. After docking to the Russian station, David is asked or forced to stay on the rocket while his two comrades step foot onto the station to try and see how they can get back to Earth. Not long after his comrades have been on the stations, shots ring out and the woman comes stumbling back to the ship, gives David a microchip and tells him to leave and go back to Earth. He doesn't want to leave without her or his hero boss, but he realizes, realizes that if he doesn't leave, he will die and he detaches from the Russian space station. He barely makes it back to Earth and crash lands in Rio. His landing is publicized so his enemies know where he is and immediately begins chasing him. David asks some kids for, to help him escape from the people hunting him, and he heads to the stadium based on a mysterious message he received on the rocket before he landed. Only when he gets there, he can't tell if the person he's supposed to meet is friend or foe. Turns out he's foe. Once David has eluded the people he's chasing him for the moment, he contacts a senator that he knows backed the space program that he participated in. He finds out that the chip that the woman handed him back on the Russian space station is a key of sorts that will unlock nuclear weapons trained on the U.S. After the senator promises to help him get the chip into the right hands because you can't trust anyone in the government, they are all corrupt, sounds familiar, he feels relieved and hopeful that his nightmare journey is over. Only the senator gets killed and he's back on the run. He turns to a reporter that is a thorn in the U.S. space program side and together they form an alliance to try and find a man who basically helped create the space program and who is not only an insider but a powerful insider.
the whole story was one exciting adventure after another, and it was interesting and fun to see David think quick on his feet and MacGyver his way out of situations. It was always clever and somewhat believable, but then again, I'm not a big science fiction reader, so it may not have been believable to readers that actually knew what they were reading. I love these types of stories, but there is no way I could write something like this. I'm not imaginative enough to wiggle my character out of a seemingly impossible situation. I don't have the problem-solving skills to make it not only feasible, but plausible. Maine does a good job of not only helping his character to escape, but to make it plausible enough for me not to roll my eyes at the creative solution. I envy this type of writing as I think it's exciting and fun and it's entertaining to see Maine torment his character so much. Though this was a plot-driven story, Maine does a good job of hinting at a love interest with a super smart reporter, and I'm looking forward to reading the second book in this series to see if or how that relationship develops. But this story is more action and adventure focused, so if you're looking for a fun, fast, exciting read, this is the book for you. And if you're a science fiction geek, this book is out of this world. Give it a read. And I gave it five stars. Um, yes, I'm a little biased because it is it is Andrew Maine, and I pretty much love everything that he writes. But it is a great, exciting read. I mean, you really do every every single chapter, every single page, pretty much. David is in these impossible situations. And you know that Andrew sat around thinking, how am I going to get this character out of here? What are my options? And that's the part of the writing process that I would be completely and totally stuck on because I don't have very good problem solving skills. And um, I just don't know that I would be able to write uh, my character out of an, an impossible situation. Um but I, I really envy and admire Maine's ability to to put this this character in such a tight situation and to write him out of it. And I, I just I enjoyed it. And his humor, guys, it's a subtle humor, but it is David is hilarious. Okay, this guy, he's he thinks super quick on his feet. You can see him running all of these scenarios just super fast through his head, like, how am I going to respond? What's my next move? And yet he's so funny about it. He just has a lot of humor about it, too. So it was an enjoyable read. I loved it. And I don't normally go for this science fiction stuff, but I'm really glad I picked it up. And I'm really looking forward to reading the second book of the series. So if you're looking for something fast and fun like this, oh, this is your book. This would be be a good summer read, honestly. Um, So pick it up if you can. Um, I do read Kindle eBooks. So if you are an eBook reader and you're a Kindle Unlimited member, this is free to you on Amazon. I don't know how much it would cost if you were to buy the book. But as I said in my last podcast, I don't do, I don't uh, read physical books anymore. It's all ebooks just because I just don't have the physical space to put all the books that I read, uh, to, to house all the books that I read. So I do read ebooks exclusively. And I also have chosen to do this because I, I like reading more indie authors as opposed to the best, like the best-selling authors. Um, I find indie authors way more interesting. And I think the stories are more fun and enjoyable as opposed to the mainstream stuff that gets shot out, regurgitated or whatever. So anyway, um, 
That's the book review for this week, Station Breaker by Andrew Main. And if you're interested in reading the next book that I have on my list, it is, um, what is the next book on my list? <laughs> Let me look at it. Oh, it's The Lost Colony, The Long Winter Number 3 by A.G. Riddle. It is the third book of a trilogy. That is the next book that I will be talking about. So thanks so much for tuning in. Have a wonderful 4th of July. Don't blow anything up. That's not supposed to be blown up. <laughs> and I'll talk to you guys next time. Thanks. Bye. Thank you.